You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Welcome to episode 83 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm going to be looking at The Nom number 73, which is part one of the two-part Siege and On Loke storyline, and that storyline takes place in April of 1972. And since I've already covered this month as well as May of 1972, I'm going to skip historical context for the episode and once again talk about China Beach, this time covering Season 2. Our song this time around is Mother and Child Reunion by Paul Simon, a song that hit number 4 on the Billboard Hot 100 this month and was the 57th most popular song of 1972. It was the first single off of his second studio album, which I believe is still crazy after all these years. It has a reggae influence and a title with a peculiar origin. Wikipedia has a halfway decent summary of the song's background, saying that Simon liked reggae. He listened to Jimmy Cliff, Desmond Decker, and Byron Lee. He wanted to go to Kingston, Jamaica to record the song, as that's where Cliff had recorded his anti-war song, Vietnam, back in 1970. The title of the song has its origin in a chicken and egg dish called Mother and Child Reunion that Simon saw on a Chinese restaurant's menu. The song's lyrics were inspired by a pet dog that was run over and killed. It was the first death that Simon personally experienced, and he began to wonder how he would react if the same thing happened to his wife, Peggy Harper. Somehow there was a connection between this death and Peggy, and it was like heaven, Simon told Rolling Stone in 1972. I don't know what the connection was. Our issue this time around is entitled Siege, and the credits are... Don Lomax, writer, Wayne Van Sant, artist, Phil Felix, letterer, colorist, Tim Tuohy, assistant editor, Don Daly, editor, and Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. The cover is by Mike Harris and Mark McKenna and shows Ed Mark sitting on a crate and hunched over a typewriter, while in the surprint there are images of war, a plane being shot down, a GI with a machine gun, a chopper, and an enemy soldier. It's a cover that stands out because of its structure as well as its color palette, While Ed is in green army fatigues, the background is electric blue and the title of the book is Hot Pink. Something you wouldn't think would work, but it surprisingly does. We open on Wednesday, April 5th, 1972 at 0320 hours. Ed Marks collapses exhausted shortly after having phoned in his column to the Associated Press Bureau in Saigon so it can be forwarded back to the United States. He's then woken up by Tex, who is ready to take him on his next mission. They board a chopper and head out, and we get a few caption boxes that provide some content. During North Vietnam's Eastertide Offensive in the spring of 1972, the North Vietnamese Politburo commits nearly its entire army to a three-pronged attack. One prong is an attack along the DMZ and a sweep in from sanctuaries in Laos to overrun Quang Tri, South Vietnam's most northern province. The second incursion is an attempt to seize Kantum province in the Central Highlands and the lowlands near the coast. 
The third is an attack into Third Corps to capture Onlok in the Iron Triangle north of Saigon. The only thing that stands in their way now is the small hamlet of Loch Nin. Ed Marks has just experienced the attack on Quang Tree. Now he's about to experience the third prong of the attack. As they fly toward Loch Nin, Ed asks how long it will take, and Tex replies that they have to make refueling stops, and it'll be a milk run from there. Ed has his doubts, and when they land to refuel, he heads to the PX for some snacks. When he gets back to the chopper, Tex tells him that there's a big enemy push north of there and that they have been rerouted. Tex is tinkering with the chopper's engine, and when Ed holds a screwdriver and points out that some of the wires are loose and there's a fair amount of rust, he hits something or knocks something loose, but the chopper does get off the ground. About four or five minutes later, they're looking for Anlok, and Ed points out that this is essentially his old stomping ground, as his division spent a lot of time in the Iron Triangle back in 1966 and 67. Suddenly, they get buzzed by a South Vietnamese jet that is then taken out by a surface-to-air missile. The hit is dangerously close, and it causes the chopper to lose altitude. Tex manages to land it in some tree branches, and they get out gingerly, and then they get to the ground. They get their bearings, and Tex suggests that since Ed has familiarity with the area and he was in the infantry, he should take point. Ed does, and they eventually come to a village that seems friendly, but Ed spots something and they are eventually fired upon and head out. Eventually, they come to a massive line of locals who are obviously fleeing action going on to the north of them. The sun begins to set, and coming upon an abandoned Buddhist temple, they hold up there for the night. Ed wakes up the next morning and looks out to the road where the mass of refugees was, only to see tire tracks. The road is completely chewed up by what was obviously many tracked vehicles. By the size of the scores in that mud, Ed guesses that they were tanks, probably an entire column of them. Those refugees who were unable to get out of the way were grounded to the mud by the NVA war machines. Ed stares at the bodies and the tracks and says, The humanity while the rest of the guys realize that they're behind enemy lines. Now there is actually a specific historical context related to Onlok and the Battle of Onlok, which I will save for next issue and the conclusion of this story. Onlok is mentioned a couple of times in popular culture, though. Uh, in American Graffiti's epilogue, Terry the Toad is said to be killed near Onlok in 1965, and if you watch the movie's sequel, More American Graffiti, you know that he faked his death and deserted the army. In Good Morning Vietnam, when Sergeant Major Dickerson sends Adrian Cronauer to the jungle to interview troops, he's really essentially sending them to an area that is very dangerous, he inquires about traffic and enemy near, activity near Onlok. I will start my review with the art. Wayne Van Zandt is on full art once again, and I have the same positive things to say as I did last time around, and that his work is really more well-defined than it was a number of years ago. And while I did enjoy his and Jeff Isherwood's artwork together, Van Zandt's other inkers didn't do him as much of a service, and it's in here that we really see the potential come through. As for the story, it's really solid, especially for one that serves as a setup for its second part. Something I don't think I noticed until now, and maybe that's because the previous storyline was the first one where we saw Ed Marks again, was that Don Lomax is going to use Ed as a way for us to see some of the bigger events of the war in 1972. Ed is covering the war now instead of fighting in it, so we get a different perspective from a familiar character. I have to say I like that. 
We're 73 issues in at this point, and the, quote, story from the ground and the point of view of the soldier has been done several times over. Plus, while I obviously wasn't in Vietnam, I don't know if there would have been a difference between what you would see from the grunt's eye view if it were 67 or 72. Perhaps things had changed, perhaps they hadn't. With Ed and the AP, we can get a sense of the scale and the scope of the war, and it's also a contrivance to put us in important events. And that actually works. One thing that struck me is that Lomax and Van Sant have done a good job at taking what Doug Murray started with in Ed Marks, The Bright-Eyed Kid, and changing him and aging him in a way that seems realistic. He hasn't done a 180 and turned him into, like, Iceman from the Chuck Dixon run, but... Ed's definitely sadder at times and a little more weathered. And I honestly think it's a shame to see that this book would be cancelled in about 11 issues because I would have loved to see a follow-up storyline that featured a reunion in like the late 80s or early 90s. Granted, that's exactly what we will get in the last season of China Beach when I cover it in a couple of episodes, but even though Ed Marks is a fictional character, he's become the type of guy you want to sit down with and talk to about his experiences. What action there is is well-paced, and it makes sense. The miscommunication and problem concerning the jet that gets the chopper into deep trouble is something that I can imagine happening, even if it is a little plot convenient. The attack on the village by a couple of hidden enemy soldiers is exactly the thing we've seen over and over, and I personally think that the ending is well-scripted and well-drawn. In a two-parter, you have to have an ending at part one that is pure cliffhanger, and Lomax provides just some awful carnage to do it. But, and I don't know if this was because of the comics code or if this was Lomax and Van Zandt's choice, but the way it's portrayed is not gory or vulgar. Ed wakes up, he heads out of the temple, and the last page is six panels, five and an inset. The top panel is Ed running out of the temple with an inset of his shocked eyes. Then you have three panels of tread tracks and a few bodies in the distance, a close-up of a white and blue bandana, which is what a refugee whom he had been, who had been with them the night before was wearing. And then you see Ed's scruffy, shocked face, followed by just the hand and the bandana of the refugee on the ground. It reminds me of way back in, I think it was issue 5, where the platoon found the village that had been massacred, and Michael Golden portrayed the shocked looks of the soldiers and not the gutted bodies of the villagers. It's that great artistic trick of showing you just enough to let your mind fill in the rest, and it works incredibly well. And that will almost do it for issue 73. Because with this issue begins a six-page backup story called Stateside. And I'll get to that right after this. When you talk about comics, does it sound something like this? Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98 with the 300s. Lori Lamaris hasn't even been introduced. Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robinson, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. 
On the Coffee and Comics podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. The last six pages of this issue, and several of the issues moving forward, contains a backup feature called Stateside. This is part one, a fond farewell, and while our editorial team has not changed, our creative team is Don Lomax Writer, Mike Harris Pencils, Jimmy Palmiotti Inks, Phil Felix Letters, John Calise Colors. We open at the Associated Press Foreign Bureau in New York City. It's 5.42 p.m. and Ed Marks' director, Dennis Lawrence, is leaving for the day. A blonde woman, whose name I don't think we ever get, comes up to Dennis's desks and asks him if he's ready to go. He says that he's almost finished and she stays to talk with him, mentioning that she's read Ed Marks's last two columns and they're really good. Dennis mentions that Ed was in Vietnam while he was covering it and that's how he knows him. Dennis also gives the war credit for giving him a career because before heading in-country, he was working bland stories at local television news stations. Vietnam got him a network job as a cameraman, and she points out that building a career on the grief of innocent people is cold. Dennis says that it's the nature of the beast, and they head to the car. On the way back to her apartment, they have a conversation about the nature of war and the nature of journalism. She asks him why he hired Ed right out of journalism school, and Dennis says that Ed had experience, as well as what he calls the quality of being able to smell trouble, which, by the way, we saw on display in this issue's main story. Not every reporter has that. She asks him if it's true that on Dennis's first trip to the field, he got so excited he forgot to change the film in his camera, which is a callback to issue two of the series. And Dennis is all, I had technical difficulties. And then the conversation shifts to Vietnamization, troops coming home, and how long Ed is going to be over there. Dennis says the war's been good for him, and he doesn't know what they'll do for headlines after it's all over. She mentions that there will be plenty of horror, mystery, and pain in a world without Vietnam. They head up to her apartment. He offers to pick her up to go out, but she just wants to sit at home and mentions Ed again, and talks about how in college she used to write letters to troops to cheer them up. Dennis leaves, she takes a bath, and then reads Ed's latest column, Winding Down, before she sits down to write him a letter. I flipped ahead to a couple of issues, and these stories are related in that they are all about what happened to a number of the characters from the very beginning of the series. Dennis was a minor character in one issue, but this works to get Ed Marks into the story, tie it to our main book, and give us an entryway into this whole after-nom bit. Lomax has only six pages to work with here, so he has to get things done in a tight space, especially since there's not going to be a continuation. And he does a good job by just having two people talking on a ride home from work. It's a natural conversation, too, because they're journalists and they talk shop as well as talk about what's going on in the world related to what they're covering. I thought her writing a letter at the end was a nice touch, even if it did too, put too much of a bow on it. And I did like how she pointed out that after the war is over, there's going to be plenty wrong with the world, especially since they spent the previous pages driving through the streets of New York, where there are homeless people, rat-infested apartment buildings, a guy holding up a convenience store, two prostitutes beating up some guy and taking his money. Okay, those images are a little too on the nose, but in the six pages that Lomax, Harris, and Palmiati are working with here, they need a way to get across the point that while Dennis and the girl, and if I'm being honest, it drives me nuts that she's not named in this story, 
are talking about the Vietnam War politics and the horrors of the world they cover. New York City is starting to enter its dirty 1970s period, where by the end of the decade it would have its own reputation as a war zone. And like I said, while it's really on the nose, I do like that they are making the point about how rough things were getting in the cities at that point, and the irony of two people who are supposed to be journalists and therefore professional observers seem to be completely unaware of it. The artwork, it's a little inconsistent. There are some great moments. I especially like the last page where she takes a bath and writes the letter because it's a well-composed silent sequence. But there are also times where Harris and Palmiotti's facial expressions seem different from panel to panel and rushed. And by the way, I have to point out this out. Um, there's a panel on the third page of the story that looks exactly like a Roy Lichtenstein painting. And I can't imagine that's just a coincidence. The panel shows Dennis and the girl in the front of the car. She's leaning back and looking ahead, and he's facing forward but glancing at her. It looks a lot like Lichtenstein's, Lichtenstein's In the Car, which itself was based on a panel from Girls' Romances number 78. And a little bit of poking around the internet leads me to think that the original artist was Tony Abruzzo. Or Abruzzo, depending on how you pronounce that. Anyway, I'll publish a side-by-side -side or a triptych of... The original panel uh, from Girls' Romances, the Lichtenstein painting, and the Mike Harris and Jimmy Palmiotti pencil panel from this issue to show uh, to the show notes, and you can decide that for yourself. And like I said, the art's a little messy in places, and it does make its flaws show, but when it's neater and tighter, I actually really, really like it. Plus, the script is solid, and I'm looking forward to the next few and to see what other members of the fifth that we, uh, we see after the war. There is a letter column this month, so let's take a look at letters and ads. Mike Jones from St. Louis, Missouri writes in and says he enjoys the comic very much. Um, he likes what Dick's, Chuck Dixon, Don Lomax, and Wayne Van Zandt have done in the book. And he says, a couple of months ago, I read a letter from someone saying they wanted to see what happened to soldiers that made it out of the NOM throughout the decades. I second that. I'd love to see something like that. And they reply, the way things look, and because you out there seem to want it, look for stories concerning the stateside return of Vietnam vets in the not-so-distant future. More of this at the end of the letter page. And who says we don't listen? Javier Verdal Rodriguez of Bayamon, Puerto Rico, writes that he's writing the letter because he thinks he should give vacation time to Wayne Van Zandt and bring in a new artist. Um, he doesn't like Wayne Van Zandt art. Uh, he doesn't know why Mike Golden left. Um, he's like, he's no Rush Teeth, etc., um, he says, can't keep, please all the people all the time, but we'll keep trying is the editorial response. Dennis Cartwright um, says that issue 70 reminded him of old war films. Too bad John Wayne is no longer with us. Wouldn't that be something? Um, and that, because that issue, that story could be an all out war movie, according to him. Uh, Dan Churchek from Tacoma Park, Maryland says, my dad is a Vietnam vet. I'm 22 and I'm a senior in college. For the longest time, my dad didn't want to talk about his war experiences, and I never wanted to push him. I wasn't all that interested. Then one day, a short time after I arrived home for the summer, I was buying comics in the local shop. Then, when I saw the July issue of the NOM, I decided to buy it. Getting home, I set myself down on the couch and began reading. The copy of the NOM was sitting atop a small stack when my dad came in. He saw it, sat down, picked it up. I didn't stop him. And actually, didn't notice. Not that, anyway. Later after dinner, we were sitting in the living room talking, of course, or it would have been silly for me to come up to, for me to have written this. The comic came up. 
He wanted to know what I thought of it. When I said I enjoyed the action, he grimaced and asked, Did you understand the pain? I was kind of taken back, but then it seemed my dad didn't really want an answer. But Because without waiting for me to reply, he started telling me for the first time what his part in the Vietnam War actually was. He didn't play a major role, but his own words, The Vietnam War was all the hell I ever want to live. I wouldn't feel right saying what his part in the war was, not without him knowing, but wanted to share with you what the Nam has done for us as a family. Without question, the talks my father and I have had since the Nam came into our house and brought us much closer together. For that, I can't thank you enough. Lucas Springer from Orlington, Washington. Um, loves the covers. Loves the art. Uh, his best, says Wayne's best issue was number 70. It's great artwork. Uh, and then finally, Brad Heathcliff says from new york new york writes in he says the nom is currently back on track uh, having the punisher was good for sales but i can't help but looking at it as a as a bit of a marketing ploy he says this new arc chicken lips and the other on the other hand is pure nom the way it should be don lomax weaves a very convincing story with a limited number of pages he has to work with given the 22 pages in a comic book he does an exceedingly good job and he talks about the art a little bit i'm not gonna read the whole letter he finally says i hope these guys stick around for a bit what a shame would be to get off to such an impressively dramatic start only have to turn around and be short-lived uh they say we're going to certainly going to give our all brad to keep the momentum going in issue 70 from issue 70 but then that's not too hard a task when you've got the talent of both don lomax and wayne van zant sticking around for a stretch so expect these high standards to remain firm he says as far as pushing for new directions many things are in the works such as the earlier mentioned stories concerning the stateside return of vietnam vets beginning next issue that's right next issue a 16 page story in country followed by a six story set in the u.s highlighting past nom characters i'm wondering if this was supposed to run this blurb was supposed to run in a previous issue because they just started this but either way but uh, we don't want to give away too much too soon, but trust us, there's a lot to look forward to, and we'll fill you in as we can. Um, then there's a box in the bottom right-hand corner. It has nothing to do with the nom, but it just says that from for you Venom fans out there, we've got a Spider-Man comic in the works called The Trial of Venom, uh, and it's a, for available for like five bucks or something, and you can send away for it, and it, the proceeds go to UNICEF. Ads this month, there's a lot of the same things. Um, super high impact football for based on the arcade smash for the Sega. Football action is so real, it's boom crunching. Uh, the ETM Entertainment this month, Mega Hits, is actually a little bit different this time. We do have the Skybox Presents an only 100 um, card series Marvel was this Marvel Masterpieces, I believe it was called. Fully painted art by Joe Jesco. I had a, a number of these. I really liked that. Um, I really liked that card series. And I believe at one point they actually put out a comic book of like a gallery comic um, that was all of the paintings, or at least a number of the paintings that Jesco did. Uh, let's see. The Executioner storyline is still going on. It's highly recommended. Spider-Man 2099 features the origin of Spider-Man of the future. It is hot. Um, I should point out that Spider-Man is spelled as one word, so it's Spider-Man. Hey. <laughs> Why isn't it Spider-Man? You know, like Goldman, Silverman. Because it, it's not his last name. 
It isn't? No, it's not like... like Phil Spiderman. <laughs> He's a spider... man. Um, Ravage 2099, written by Stan the Man Lee. Ravage 2099, one should be a blockbuster. Death's Head, by popular demand. Death's Head return to, returns in this all-new monthly series. It's recommended. Highlighted by an eye-catching holographics cover. Hulk number 400 will be hot. Um, and we've got, let's see, ooh, Wetworks, an all-new Violet Covert Strike Team by Wills. X-Men Portatio and Image Comics is so hot it's burned the flesh from your hands. That smells really gross. Yeah, we're firmly in the 90s here, kids. Mile High Comics has its classic yellow background ad, and they're having a Marvel bonanza. Um, and they're saying everything they have is in, in stock. Dave's Comics of Richmond, Virginia, which at this recording, I believe, closed about a year, year and a half ago. Um, and I think Bob Fisher uh, used to be a regular there because um, I believe the owner passed on, sadly. Anyway, um, he's got a Dave's got an issue. Um, Dave's, Dave's got an issue. Dave's got an advertisement that says, missed an issue. We have the hottest comics at the coolest prices. And uh, they can... They can send you. You can send a dot away for a dollar for for the catalog. There is a PSA for the Boys Town National Hotline, which shows both Bruce Banner and the Hulk, and it says we almost deal with the monster within. Um, we have our own anger and pain. Keeping it inside can do a lot of damage. Call the Boys Town National Hotline and talk to someone who can really help, no matter how serious your problems are. And they have the one eight hundred number, which is of course a toll free number. Right around the staple, there is a two-page spread for Rock Video Monthly. can't remember if I've done this yet or not. Um, it is... It says, introducing a deal that will turn you inside out. It's called Rock Video Monthly. Get one VHS video cassette filled with 10 coronary arresting videos. That's 10 subcutaneous cutting-edge bands that you'll feel for a microscopic 298 that stays a single-celled 298 every month. Happy Mondays, the album Yes, Please, Stinkin' and the song Stinkin' Thinkin'. Body Count, um, with from the album Body Count. Remember, this was uh, Ice-T's um, hardcore band that infamously put Cop Killer on the album before they had to... And that was a, a huge controversy then to the point where I think Warners took the song off the album. Uh, the song that they have a video for here is The Winner Loses. Pantera, vulgar display of power, which I actually think I have this CD. Uh, the song is This Love. The Beautiful, the album Storybook, uh, the song is John Doe. Material Issue, Destination Universe. The song is What Girls Want. I haven't heard of half of these bands. Uh, we've got Sonic Youth. I've heard of Sonic Youth from the album Dirty. 100% is your song. Television. Pretty sure I've heard of television. I don't know how much I've listened to television. But uh, the album is television. And the song is called Call Mr. Lee. Aztec Camera has an album called Spanish Horses. Caius. K-Y-U-S-S, Blues for the Red Sun, Green Machine is the song, and the one I do recognize, and I have this album, and I've listened to this album more than once, is Tori Amos' Little Earthquakes, and of course, the first single off that was the classic Crucify. This is a very, very early 90s alternative lineup. Uh, there is a Ghost Rider 
Road to Vengeance 1900 trivia game that you can play. Uh, all winners received a limited edition Ghost Rider print, a plate signed by Andy Kubert, Joe Kubert, and Greg Wright. The grand prize winners receive a Ghost Rider stand-up. Um, and the last two, the back cover, the back inside cover and the back cover are the same things we saw last month with the Mark Rippon Fleer ad and the Wolverine and Jubilee Charleston Chew ads. So at this point, I am going to take another break. And when I get back, I am going to have season two of China Beach. Stick around. <laughs> Movies, TV, comics, music, pop culture affidavit has it all. It's everything random in the world of popular culture, and it's all covered by me, Tom Panneries. New episodes drop monthly at 2TrueFreaks.com, and be sure to check out blog posts about random pop culture topics at PopCultureAffidavit.com. Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. once again to talk about China Beach this time around I'm covering the second season much like the last episode I'm going to talk about each of the main characters as well as new ones and I'm going to give an overview and my thoughts on season two so season two is um, the first full season of China Beach and there are some there's at least one big exit uh, and I'll talk about that in a little bit um, but Nan Woods who played Cherry was was gone by the middle of the season and there are two new characters um, one of whom would really stay on till the end uh, the other one of whom would be would be kind of gone by the end of this uh, by the middle of the third season or so but then by would be in the final uh the finale for the season in fact um well there's a reason nan woods isn't in the season but she's also not in the reunion because she decided to leave the show and quit acting altogether 
which I found interesting. Uh, but the two new characters are uh, Waylu Marie Holmes, um, who is an aspiring journalist, and the actress was Megan Gallagher, who was sent to China Beach at the beginning of the season. Uh, she starts out as doing these puff pieces for like PR about like R and R and things like that because she used to. She was kind of started as a weather girl. And so they have her doing, um, you know, these kind of puff pieces about R&R and all these things. They're not really, nobody's really taking her seriously, but she starts to see the war firsthand and it strengthens her resolve to be a journalist. So one particular story that she does investigate is the story behind Booney's former unit, uh, because Booney was a Marine and, and, and we get a little bit more of his character and why he has decided to just be kind of the bartender at the R&R place, the Five and Dime. And we see that there was there were things that actually happened to his unit, and this is kind of what he feels like is his like his way out of serving his time, but not being fully involved in the war because he can't take it. And that will be a big, big part of him going into the third and then into the fourth season in terms of who he is and him being a number of characters. As we go into the last season of the show, where we do flash forward, suffering from obvious post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, so or syndrome, and at one point he is uh, he is the subject of an inquiry because while Waylu thinks that his story is heroism, it's actually quite the opposite. Uh, the other person is Frankie Benson. Um, this is Nancy Giles, who is a new recruit. She's doing various jobs. She's a black woman who is assigned to the motor pool and winds up kind of butting heads with Sergeant, uh, well, Sergeant Pepper, remember, <laughs> Troy Evans's character because he helps run the motor pool. And, and he's way more of a kind of a good old boy. And uh, yeah, so they, they butt serious heads. And it is the 60s, so a lot of, a lot of the uh, strife of the civil rights movement, these sorts of things do come into play because we are about 1968 with the show. Like I said, season two is the first full season of the show. There were uh, there weren't that many. Um, there were about eight episodes of the original season, and then you get a full what was then a full seventeen episodes of uh, this season. So you're, you've got a few discs on the DVD set, and uh, that really allows significantly more character development over time. Um, one particular important event is the episode called Tet 68, which takes place during the Tet Offensive. So we start out in 67, late 67, and we move into, into 1968 because the Tet Offensive took place in early 1968. And uh, the reason I said Nan Woods really doesn't come back for the last season of the show where you had like kind of all these characters who had been on the show for the whole time coming back in one way or another, it's because she dies in, uh, Cherry dies in that episode. Um, so, and she really hadn't ap appeared in many episodes in that season anyway. Um, she had gotten, uh, she had the season premiere. She gets drunk in an event and more or less tells off an officer with a speech about who's fighting the war for them. Um, you could tell that she's very affected by the whole event with her brother from the end of the first season. And Nan Woods, like I said, she decided to quit acting at very, very young age. I think she was about 22, 23 at the time. So they decided to just kind of kill off the character and have that be sort of a, a, a plotline for a few for a few episodes. And it, it would really become an, a character arc for KC, Mark Heldenberger's story that opened us. Who she opened a salon, 
but she was also shown to be on her way to becoming a junkie. Um, we've got hints of her possibly having a romance with Booney. And at one point, her father, it's discovered, has died. And she reveals that he sexually abused her. So we have this this character who in the first season was kind of the bad girl to, you know, um, to, some, to the good girl of Cherry and, and some of the other people. And now she's... You know, there's there's some serious serious things in her background. Um, heroin and dr- especially heroin and other drugs come into play in this season and later on in the show as well with her and Booney, um, who will get who will get hooked on it in season three and season four. Dodger winds up badly wounded in the premiere episode, and this hits McMurphy very personally. She winds up doing anything and everything she can to help him recover. Uh, when he finally does, she returns to the jungle, perhaps feeling that he belongs there. Uh, Booney's storylines tend to come really more as comic relief, but there is that one that shows what he actually has been hiding. Um, as a Marine, he was part of a long-range recon patrol, and he really he fragged. Well, he didn't use a, a grenade. He really just shot um, shot him, but he, he, he killed his squad leader because the squad leader, who was uh, Tom Irwin, who was uh, from my so-called life, uh, Angela Chase's dad, was killing children, um, and he wants to. Uh, he winds up with a medal, uh, and and the the guy who plays uh, Waylu McCarthy's uh, dad is Kevin McCarthy of Invasion of the Body Snatchers fame, and who was also on UH, in UHF, by the way. Anyway, he plays Waylu's dad, and then um, and Booney instead of like you know after this inquiry and everything, he's not charged with anything. But this reinforces forces the idea that. Uh, because of the way he acts, because of the way he is when he's on base, etc., Booney is hiding something, and that is uh, really, really important, and he's trying to escape something, and that becomes even more important as the show will go on through season three and four. Uh, Robert Picardo's Dick Richards winds up getting divorced this season. Um, he gets this Dear John letter from his wife, or more appropriately, he gets a drawing from his son, of the kids playing with Uncle Doug, uh, who's obviously her boyfriend. And then he also has this episode where his arrogance fails him when he can't save a girl from dying. Beckett, our coroner, uh, falls in love with a Vietnamese woman named May. He's also forced to confront issues concerning race that come to light when they get news that Martin Luther King has been assassinated. That episode has him caught between two worlds because he has a very honest discussion with Frankie and some of the black soldiers in the area about his issues that are facing them in the war. It echoes what some of Doug Murray uh, put in the comic toward the end of his run. And although they have Richard Tyson as a racist soldier who is uh, really a caricature. And honestly, did Richard Tyson ever play anyone nice? Anyway, but for the sake of it, it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a stretch. It's a little bit melodramatic. And you have to remember, this is network television of the 80s. And they weren't always subtle with some of the storylines. It works for the sake of the storyline, even if it's a little heavy handed at times. It's not sitcom heavy handed. Don't get me wrong there. But, um, you know, you have to go in sometimes to this show and similar shows from, from the late 1980s with the idea that this is very much a sort of it's of a it's it's of a of a time and it's of a place and it's of a style and and that tended to be a little bit more more overly dramatic than say you know low key now McMurphy 
the season's beginning, finds out that Natch, remember her boyfriend, is actually married. <laughs> so she's the other woman. She breaks up with him. Uh, then he believes. Then she believes Nat, Nash was shot down, and she thinks he's dead. Uh, he returns later, and he eventually part ways. He'll be going back to his wife and son. She does nurse Dodger back to health, and the night of the Ted Offensive, figures out what K- that Casey is addicted to heroin. In the season finale, she accompanies Waylu to the U.S. because Waylu is headed to a job at ABC. So she'll be gone. She will be gone for the third season. She'll she'll make a couple of appearances here and there over the course of the show, and uh, then she goes home to Kansas after finding out that her father has had a heart attack. She eventually saves his life in the hospital once, but he does end up passing before the season is over. Life at home to her is unfamiliar. McMurphy clashes with her pushy mother. Her brothers are wayward and holding on to the past. And she's so clearly struggling with belonging back home. Um, Her road back to Vietnam takes her through San Francisco, where she looks up an old friend and fellow nurse who's played by Academy Award winner Kathy Bates. I think this is prior to Misery, though. And uh, Kathy Bates' character is working at a vet's hospital, so she's there with the vets and helping out at the hospital. And her time with those vets convinces her that she is needed at China Beach. Although, ironically, it seems that her absence really changed nothing. Um, it should be noted that in this uh, in this finale episode of the season, Megan Mullally uh, has an early role in her career. She plays a singer. One other episode of Notes is for the middle of the season or so is called Vets. Uh, this was shot in a style close to a documentary where an actual veterans were interviewed about their experiences, and those interviews were intercut with clips from the show. Um, one thing that's noticeable about one of the people interviewed is the really is the spitting image of Dana Delaney. It's like uncanny how much they look alike. Um, but it's also worth noting that it actually what they tell they tell you in some of the featurettes and some of the bonus features that this was an episode that was something that took convincing to get on the air. Um, ABC was like nobody's really going to want to watch this episode. It's not you know dramatic. It's essentially a, a glorified clip show. And who's going to want to listen to just a bunch of people talking for an entire episode? And, you know, they pushed and pushed, and it was uh, it was a notable episode in the season, I believe. It, it, I don't know if the ratings were, what the rating, ratings were, but, um, but, they do, uh, but they do talk a little bit about, um, in some of the bonus features, about how it got a very good response overall. Uh, bonus features on season two have interviews with Mark Helgenberger, who has this very straightforward interview, although Delaney actually, in the episode where her and, and her character and Dana Delaney's character um, are kind of trapped in a building uh, during the Tet Offensive, and that's where McMurphy discovers that Casey is addicted to smack, and they get into serious conflict, and there's one point where they actually get into a fistfight, and McMurphy punches uh, KC and Mark Helgenberger talks about the fact that in shooting the scene, Dana Zelaney actually accidentally connected with the punch. So you see her actually actually did punch her. Um, so I thought that was an interesting bit of trivia. Michael Boat Boatman. Um, talks about the preacher's son character of Beckett. And then uh, Robert Picardo act, talks about Dick Richardson, talks about the fact that he actually at one point had gone to med school. 
which which again a little trivia and it's all of them kind of talking about how they got the role what their character was like what it was like filming your typical featurette things but like i said for for um a show that only lasted some seasons um about four seasons you know they put some real care into this box set so it's uh it's worth picking up even if you can get the individual seasons um there's a fifth disc on the box set that is um that has bonus features and there's some stuff that is brand new there or complete stuff and then there's some stuff that they've actually kind of reproduced in bits and parts over the course of the season so there's a lot of rerunning in there now, much like I did with the last episode, I am going to find a letter that was written to the show uh, in the Tales from the Five and Dime book. And I've got a, a really good one from a woman named Ann Kelsey, who wrote to John Sackert Young back in 1990. She said, Dear Mr. Young, I am writing to tell you how much I enjoy China Beach. I was a U.S. Army civilian in charge of special services libraries in Kamran Bay in 1969 and 1970. Those of us who are female civilian employees of the armed services and the Red Cross, among others, are the most neglected and forgotten of all those who participated in the Vietnam War. Your program, although it concentrates on the nurses, still has done much to acknowledge our presence and give us faces and voices. I watch China Beach every week never get through a program without crying. It brings back a lot of memories and emotions. Most important, your episodes tell the world that we were there and that we contributed something no matter what our function was. I really hope that the series is renewed. I would miss it very much. If you do make more episodes, I wonder if you would consider something. I was a librarian. If there is any group anywhere that has been totally and completely forgotten, it is the special services librarians and their counterparts in the Air Force and Navy. It would be really terrific if our presence could be acknowledged, even tangentially. I know you have turned the China Beach Library into a beauty salon, but perhaps there is some way to work one of us into or through a story. There actually was a functioning library at China Beach, but it was run by the Navy, not the Army. At any rate, I enjoy China Beach very much, even if it does make me cry. And I thank you very much for portraying the women who served in Vietnam in such a fine, honest, and realistic manner. Sincerely, Anne L. Kelsey. So, um, that'll do it for China Beach Season 2. That'll do it for this episode of In Country. Come back in a couple of weeks where I'll look at the nom number 74, which is Part 2 of Siege on Luke, and have Season 3 of China Beach. Until then, please check the blog for show notes, and I want you to know that you can also follow me on Twitter at at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F, so follow me for updates about things that are coming down the pike. As always, of course, take care, and thanks for listening. have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders, and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. 
This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at TwoTrueFreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. Oh, no, my